So I studied philosophy. It was one of those things that, you know, I did in my horribly misspent youth. And I learned something about truth. There's pretty much four, th four ways you can talk about truth in our, uh, for ourselves. There are the things that we know that we know. Right? There, there are things we know we know. I know my name is Steve. I know that I'm standing in front of, in front of a church body right now. Um, I know those things. I know that I probably should have had more coffee this morning. I know those things. There are things that I know that I don't know. Uh, I don't know abs anything about mathematics. I really don't. If you have mathematical questions, don't come to me. I don't know anything about eating healthy, as you can tell by my gut. I don't know that. I know I don't know that. There are the things that I don't know that I know. Now, if, if I could tell you some examples of that, I, it'd be great, but I don't know that I know them. There are things that are true that I, I know are true. I act as if they're true. But when it comes to my conscious mind, I don't know that I know those things. But there's a fourth and kind of a dangerous position. There is the kinds of things that we don't know that we don't know. We don't know them, and we're not sure that we, we, we don't know that we're ignorant on these things. In some cases, it's even so bad that we don't know something, and we think we do. That's really, really dangerous. Especially when it comes to the things of God. Because the way we understand God is important. It changes the way our lives run. It changes the way we think about the people around us, and especially about the God who loves us. And you see, that's the word that I think we have problems with. Love. Now, our culture talks about love incessantly. I grew up in the 80s, so I remember all the songs. I remember Huey Lewis in the News song, sang about the, the power of love. I, I, I remember that, you know, uh, uh, Def Leppard sang about how love bites. I remember the Everly Brothers singing about how love hurts. And by the end of it, you know, Foreigner, who is much smarter than the rest of us, actually admitted their ignorance and said, I want to know what love is. <laughs> they were smarter than the rest of us because most of us think we understand what love is. And so that when I say God is love and that God loves you, we don't quite grasp what that means. You see, just back up and understand the things that we've learned about love. We say that love is all-powerful. We, we say that. I mean, it's a joke if you've seen the movie The Princess Bride. You know, true love overcomes everything, like even death. Like, he's only mostly dead because he had true love. We actually believe things like that. We'll, we'll, we'll say that, you know, like, I, I'm going to love you forever in country songs and in modern songs and all sorts of places we talk about what love really is. But when it comes right down to it, the love that we have, it's kind of fickle. I don't know if you've noticed that. I mean, couples will say these days that 
I love you and then I don't love you. I've fallen in love with you. I've fallen out of love with you. I mean, I've actually heard this thing in counseling, you know, uh, a, a husband will say, well, I don't really love her anymore. We actually believe that kind of thing about love, that it's not constant, that it doesn't have power, that it's kind of fickle, that it hurts. Because you know what happens when somebody says they don't love you anymore and you still love them? It hurts. Not, not in a minor way, it's kind of like... I don't know, I've never been kicked in the teeth, but I'm guessing that, you know, being told that, you know, someone you love doesn't love you is similar to a kick in the teeth. We, we have some strange ideas about what love is. Forner was right, we should ask. I want to know what love is, and I want well, you to show me. You see, the problem we come to is that we have this idea about love. And then because we have this idea about love, then we transfer that to God. We take the love that we feel on earth, and then we imagine that when I say God is love, that God loves you, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, what we have in our heads isn't quite what God means by love. Love is not fickle. Love, while pain can come from love, I mean, Jesus had some pretty serious pain on the cross because of love. It's not primarily pain. Love never ends, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. All these things pass away, not love. These three remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. And what we're talking about when we talk about love is something different than the culture is talking about when they talk about love. And I think this is the brilliance of the book of Hosea. You see, you remember the situation that we're in here. Uh, if you've been following along here, I had to preach some rather interesting sermons, including some words that I don't want to repeat because they're in the Bible. I did have to repeat them because they're there, but, you know, read chapter one. There's a few words that, you know, I'm going to be embarrassed to say. We saw how there was a relationship of love. Hosea marries Gomer, and they're in love. The first child that Hosea and Gomer have is a child of acceptance, a child of the relationship born of love, like the kinds of love that, you know, uh, we just went through the summer, lots of weddings happened, you know, husbands and wives were looking at each other with those kinds of doe eyes, truly believing that love will never give any problems. Uh, those of you who've been married for a while can probably educate them a little bit better. But they honestly believed that the love was going on forever. Like Hosea and Gomer. And yet... We then find that Gomer is unfaithful. Worse, God actually told Hosea she would be. I don't know if he really believed her, believed him, but it was the case that Gomer was unfaithful. Gomer went another way, and two children were, were had afterwards that nobody really knows who their father was because Gomer was so unfaithful. 
And this was a picture of the people of Israel and their relationship to God the Father. The relationship that had been broken because of the unfaithfulness. Because the kind of love that they were dealing with, the human love, was kind of fickle. That's the way human love, independent of God, functions. It's kind of fickle. It doesn't work properly. Unless you actually understand the the king of kings, the, the, the fount of all love, you're really going to have some trouble dealing, showing love. And both Gomer and the people of Israel found that out. Their love had come to an end. The relationship born on that love had come to an end. The first half of chapter 2 of Hosea explains all of the ways that because Israel had moved away from God, that God would have to limit them, that God would have to take away gifts that he had given them, which is when we get to verse 14. And verse 14 is strange. It's really, really weird. And it's weird for a very simple reason. Read verse 13. Chapter 2, verse 13. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. The first word of verse 14 is therefore. Now, in case you're new to English, therefore is a word of logical conjunction. It's saying something that should logically follow from what comes before. So when you see the punishment verses, the other two therefores in chapter, th- in chapter two, you're expecting something really negative because we kind of think God's love is like ours and we're wrong. We think God's love is fickle. We're wrong. We think God's love is impotent, that it can't overcome things, and we're wrong. And that's why we get this very strange therefore in verse 14. And not even just a therefore, it's therefore, behold, look at this, you are about to learn something. God is saying, I am going to teach you through the lips of Hosea, therefore, Behold, not I will punish her, not I will turn from her, not I, I, because she has rejected me, I will allow that, I will simply walk away and not actually come back to her. Nor is it I will use my omnipotent power to overwhelm her and force her to love me. That's not what the text says. Look at this. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. And bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. God's promise here is that he will draw his bride back to himself. Not force, 
not punish, not make it so that she can't go any other direction. She is, he is going to call her back. And unlike the human love, we are going to learn some very extreme things about God's love. Things that should make us understand love better. You see, God displays his power in his love. That's, I'm, I'm a little wary to say that because God, saying God displays his power in his love sounds odd because we think of power as kind of this overwhelming thing and we think of love as kind of this, well, nice thing but kind of weak. It's almost like a contradiction in terms, isn't it? Power, love. And yet, God's love is a powerful love. It's, an, it's a strong love. It's a love that, as we're going to see in the remainder of chapter 2 of Hosea, that makes things different. It really does change things. You don't believe me? Just go a little bit ahead in your Bible and go to Romans chapter 8, verses 37 to 39. You don't need to turn there now. I'll just read it for you. Now, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. How powerful is God's love? Let me tell you. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When I talk about love and when we're talking about God's love here, we're talking about a frightfully powerful love. We're talking about an overwhelmingly, unbelievably powerful love. A love that can overcome, well, anything, literally. And, and this is going to be important to remember, and I, I hope that you follow along here, and I'm going to tell you why it's important for you to understand this. I remember in my own life, I've had times when I was able to, I spent more time talking to myself, or sorry, listening to myself than talking to myself, if you know what I mean. Listening to things that say, well, you know, that, that, that thing you did, that's horrible. Nobody could ever accept you after that thing you did. The, I, I've had situations in my own life where I would keep telling myself that, you know, well, you know, you're not that smart, you're not that acceptable, you're not that lovely. Nobody could be, a, be your friend. No one could love you. I was wrong. And I can tell you that when those things pass through your mind, you're wrong too. Because God says directly, when he says that he loves you, that his love can overcome everything else. Your sin is not adequate to overcome the, the love of God. You are not that powerful. <laughs> You're not. You think that because God, you've sinned horribly, and I don't doubt you may have, that God can't overcome that? We're going to see he can. 
he does. In Jesus Christ, he has. His love is powerful. He displays his power through his love. So first of all, from Hosea chapter 2, I'll show you. God's love moves heaven and earth. Look at verse 18. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. Notice God is going to move heaven and earth to create a covenant for his people. And in that, verse 21, it continues, And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they will answer the earth, and the earth will answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. When God says that he will woo Israel, he doesn't just mean it's going to be an empty kind of wooing. I'm going to whisper sweet nothings in Israel's ear. I'm going to move heaven and earth to provide for my bride. I will move heaven and earth to bring them closer to myself. Heaven and earth are mobilized for the wooing of a people back to God. He doesn't merely call his people back to himself. He moves nature itself to call his people back to himself, making heaven call and earth call to again woo God's people back to himself. Again, God's love is powerful. But more than that, God's love is attractive. Look at verse 16, 17. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. That's not an easy thing to do, to actually erase a, a word from somebody's vocabulary. Um, we, we, scientifically, we don't really have the methodology of doing that right now, except in one way. If you have something more valuable to you, you forget the less valuable. And that is what I think you're seeing here. God is saying to his people Israel that I will so move towards you. I will so show my love to you. I will so woo you back to myself that you will never talk about a Baal again. You will literally have eyes for me only. Again, not because he's going to overwhelm you with uh, you must love me. He's going to overwhelm them with the simple, sheer, attractive beauty of who he is. And so when he shows himself to them, there's nothing else they can do but turn to him. I, I don't know if you've ever seen this. I, I, I sometimes, uh, as a single guy, I tend to hang out a lot with couples. Because, you know, they're the only people around my age. They're couples. And it's really kind of annoying it's really kind of annoying when they're actually in the really lovey-dovey phase. I don't know if you've noticed this. They, they, they sit with each other, and even if you're in the room, you feel like you're not. Because, you know, they talk to each other, and even if they're talking to you, they're talking about the other person. It happens all the time. 
It's like my name is no longer exists. And in some ways, that's exactly what's happening. They have been so overwhelmed just for a short time, just for a little bit. They've been so overwhelmed by their love, their attractiveness for the other person, that they have forgotten the rest of the world. If you've been in love, you know how that feels, don't you? You know, I, I know you might not feel that about your husband or wife right now. Some of you do. Congratulations. But if you, but if you remember it, it's a feeling of amazing love. The rest of the world simply fades away as you look into the face of your beloved. And God says, that little short facet that you have for a little bit of time, maybe a couple of weeks, if you're really, really good, a year or two, that will be the relationship I have to you forever. You will look at the beauty of God God will look to you and you will, the rest of the world will simply fade away. One of my favorite pastors actually talks about uh, humility in heaven and says that that's actually, it's going to be a very strange thing to ask somebody in heaven, are you humble? Because obviously they are, they're in heaven. But that's, they won't really be able to answer you because they'll look at you kind of funny and then say, look, there, there's God. Because God is so beautiful, God is so amazing, they're so transfixed by the beauty of God that they might, if they actually talk to you, they might be a little bit annoyed that you're taking them from looking at God. And I mean, we even know this in a, in a simple way when it comes to the way when you become believers. When you first come to know God, the way you talk to other people, you know, for those first couple of weeks after you come, you're a great evangelist because somebody asks you, why are you happy all the time? Well, just let me tell you about Jesus. And you're actually relishing the ability to tell people about Jesus? It's a long time ago for me, but it happens. That's what you're going to see with God's love. God's love is attractive. He's going to remove Baal from their lips. Not by cauterizing their lips, not by saying you must never mention Baal ever again, but by being so lovely, by so wooing them that they no longer want to care about Baal. Baal becomes no more important to them. It's, um, I watch a lot of Japanese anime, it's a weird thing I do. And one of the things you watch in anime is, you know, like when the, when, the, when the main character becomes really, really powerful and this enemy that was once amazing and overwhelming, the, the main character becomes really, really powerful and then there's a, a burst of light that comes from his power and it just kind of eliminates everything around him. Just in the sheer power of the overwhelming light, everything else, all the enemies that looked so powerful a second ago are just gone. That's what we're seeing here with God. God says his love will so overwhelm his people, they won't even know about Baal anymore. Because God's love is attractive. God's love also reconciles. It brings peace. Verse 18, and I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the fields and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground, as I just said. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. Now, this is odd. 
because the enmity that the people of Israel were facing from around them and from within them wasn't because of God. It was because of themselves, their desire to seek after things that weren't godly. And yet God says he will make the situation so positive that that will be gone. There will be no bow, no sword, or war. They will lie down in safety. He protects them. He provides peace for them. But that's not all. While he's doing this, God's love is going to be a righteous love. Hosea chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. And I will betroth you to me forever. Now, that's, that, that sounds great. You know, the promise, everybody promises I'm going to love you forever. That's just the natural way people go with these, these promises. But God means it because he actually does have eternal power as we've talked about. But notice this. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and mercy. Don't pass over these words. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice. Now, how is he going to do that? Remember what Israel did. I mean, just from the simple part in verse 13, he, they, <laughs> they took the gifts that God had given them and used those gifts to go worship someone else and completely forget about God. That's pretty unrighteous, don't you think? I mean, how does this work? How is God going to be righteous while he does this? More in a moment. But he promises that this will be a righteous love, a faithful love. Which is interesting because Israel has shown that it's neither righteous nor faithful. Interesting. Yet God's love is a righteous love and it will be in righteousness and in justice that he will betroth his people back to himself. I should probably talk a little more about this because people sometimes miss it. We often think that, you know, like, well, you can just sweep the things that happened in the past under the cosmic rug. I'll point this out. This, that wouldn't be righteous. Truth is truth. The way, you've act, the way I've acted, the way the, the things I've done, they are the things I've done. The person I've been are the person I've been. And yet God promises, I will love you in that without forgetting the truth without being unjust, without being unrighteous. It will be faithful, though I know you're not faithful. That is God's promise in love. And, you know, just a spoiler alert here. You can cover your ears if you don't want to hear the spoiler. This prophecy has already been fulfilled. We'll talk about that in a minute. But even more than that, God's love transforms. It changes the situation. It changes 
It's so powerful that it changes the person being loved. Now, we have this in modern society. We like to believe that this is possible. How many people, when they got, you know, when they started dating somebody, thought, figured, I'm going to change this other person? I mean, I think it happens all the time, doesn't it? You know, I'm going to make them actually a better person by loving them more. Uh, sometimes it gets really extreme, you know, the good girl meets the really bad guy and imagines that her goodness is going to make him a good guy, and she finds out that she's not nearly as powerful as God because God actually does change the object of his love by his love. His love actually does change people. Remember that in the first part of Hosea, the, the two kids that were born afterwards, Hosea, uh, Hosea named Not My Child, not a very nice name, and No Mercy, because Israel was not going to receive mercy, because Israel was no longer his child. Well, notice verse 23. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. The situation will be so altered that the names of these people will be altered from no mercy and not my people to mercy and my people. And it will be so transformative that not my people will not just be changed in name, but changed in actual affections because they will say, you are my God. That's the power of this love. This is why the sermon is entitled An Omnipotent Love. When we talk about God and God's love, we are talking about an omnipotent, powerful love. but this isn't mere words in Hosea. We're Christians. We've read the New Testament. Let me tell you how this was fulfilled. How it's been fulfilled for you. If you will come to Christ, this has been fulfilled for you. Because God's love is displayed in His Christ. Fully perfectly, completely. When Jesus said it is finished, he meant it. As we saw in Romans, Christ's love is powerful. Do I need to repeat myself? Do I need to? Oh, come on, nobody's, nobody's rounding their heads. I'm going to repeat myself anyway because I really like the verses. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For again, I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Uh, by the way, Christ Jesus is a historical person. He historically came. He historically died and rose again on the third day. This power has been deployed for the love of you. <laughs> Just a parallel to, to Hosea 2. 
I said that God's love moves heaven and earth? Well, Christ moves heaven and earth. This is John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Heaven. Jesus Christ is heavenly. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He didn't become the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is. He didn't become God incarnate. He is God. And to move heaven and earth, God moves heaven to earth by sending his Son. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Friends, heaven has been moved to earth for love for love for you. More than that. I'm sorry, I get really excited about this stuff. Because Christ is attractive. He is beautiful. Uh, uh, there are lots of examples, but 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. This he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain, obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of this comes from obtaining to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is glorious. He is beautiful. He's transcendent. He's above all things. I really can't think of more words. I'm not that smart. He is beautiful. He is attractive. God's love is attractive. Christ is attractive. God's love reconciles. Christ reconciles. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciles us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Christ reconciles. But more than this, and this is the part I wanted to kind of focus on a little bit. Christ is righteous. And not just in the sense that he does the right things in the world. He is righteous in saving us. This is Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Yeah, like Hosea. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Why? 
This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Friends, the moment we sinned, we deserved death. And I can't really tell you the first time I sinned. I was born in sin, to be honest with you. We were all born in sin. We know that there are, I don't know how many times I've sinned even today. And if God was to be perfectly righteous outside of Christ, perfect righteousness would, would require my punishment. Then. Yet God has been in forbearance, passing over the sins that I once did. More than that, he saved me. He called me to himself. He reconciled himself to me, as I just said from the previous passage. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The promise that Hosea received was that the people of Israel, that the people who were not my people would become my people and it would be just. Well, Christ took on himself the punishment we richly deserved and gives us his righteousness. And honestly, I don't even understand the full depth of that because if I did, I would probably be lost in worship for the rest of eternity. And I probably will be. Luckily, that hasn't started yet, so I can still talk to you. But more than that, Christ is righteous. Christ transforms. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race. Now this is being said to people who are sinners, people who are not his people. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. If you are in Christ, friends, that's true of you that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And just to go back to Hosea 2.23, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Friends, Christ transforms us. Where we were once not his people, he makes us his people. The promise of Hosea is our promise. And this is what love looks like. This is real love. Not the ability to sing songs to your, uh, to your paramour, not to walk 10,000 miles as the proclaimers say. No, this is true love. To have, more, to have heaven come to earth. To be reconciled to God righteously. And to be changed by God's love into something more acceptable. Something more beautiful. Uh, the image of the ultimate beauty, Jesus Christ. So what, what does this mean for us now? Here's our application. And I'll talk about this more the next time when I have to deal with uh, Hosea chapter 3. But first of all, when it comes to love, 
be sure to model your love after God's love, not vice versa. What do I mean by that? I mean, when you say that you're going to love someone, take God as your example, because that's what love is. If you want to love properly, if you want to love well, if you want to love accurately, love as God loves, but don't attribute to God the weak sauce kind of love that we have. Don't pretend that God is as we are, some kind of fickle, painful individual that might love us one day and not love us the next. His love is faithful. Even if our love isn't. But we'll talk more about that next time. More importantly for today though, trust in God's love. God's love is powerful. God's love is able to take your trust. So trust in it. It is far... <laughs> Faith is not valued by its strength, but rather the object. So the, I can have a very strong faith in something weak, and that only means that my faith will be wasted. But if I have a, even a weak faith in something very strong, that faith will never uh, fail me. So put your faith where it will never fail you. Put your faith in the love of God. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. And finally, rejoice in God's love. Let's pray. Lord God, in the end, all that I've said were words. They were from your word. And by your grace, I pray that your spirit has convinced people of the truth of your word. But in the end, Lord, what we need is a miracle. We need you. So Lord, by your love, reconcile us to yourself. By your love, transform us into the image of your son. By your love, bring us to rejoice in you. In Jesus' name we pray.